Created during 1958, Hush Puppies would quickly become the quintessential American shoe. Immediately adopted and worn by celebrities like Warren Betty, Perry Como, members of the Rat Pack, not to mention being advertised on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, in little over a year. So launched in 1958, in one year, one million pairs of hush puppies would fly off the shelves. In 1959, Prince Philip of Great Britain wore a pair of hush puppies during his visit to the United States. A few months later, future president Gerald Ford would present a pair of hush puppies to current president Eisenhower. Even the Beatles and the Rolling Stones sported these kicks. By 1963, just five years later, one in 10 Americans owned a pair of hush puppies. And yet, as a law of nature, what goes up eventually comes down. You see, just a few years after Mikhail Gorbachev invited the brand to become the first American company to manufacture and sell footwear in the Soviet Union, sales in America had dropped to a meager 30,000 units. The numbers had become so bleak that by 1993, Wolverine, the company that manufactured Hush Puppies, was about to discontinue the famous footwear. But then something strange, unexpected, quite bizarre, took place. As the story goes, fashion trend spotters noticed that kids in New York's East Village were scouring thrift shops looking for these classic vintage hush puppies. To these fashion spotters, it made absolutely no sense why anyone in their right mind would desire a shoe that was obviously out of fashion. How in the world could these make a comeback? And yet, things got even weirder. Two Wolverine executives, Owen Baxter and Jeffrey Lewis, they ran into a stylist from New York at a fashion shoot who confirmed these particular rumors. This individual said that the classic hush puppies had suddenly become hip in the clubs and bars of downtown Manhattan, Soho. Baxter and Lewis, needless to say, were totally baffled. Then, in the fall of 1995, an up-and-coming designer, John Bartlett, called. And he asked if Wolverine would create this signature classic hush puppy in bright, optimistic colors for his upcoming New York Fashion Week show. Then another Manhattan designer, Anna Sue. She called wanting shoes for her show. And Los Angeles designer Joel Fitzgerald opened a hush puppies only boutique. Despite all of the downward trends, in 1995, the company sold 430,000 pairs of hush puppies, a dramatic turnaround, and won the Council of Fashion Designers in America Award for Accessory Product of the Year. In 1996, just another year later, they sold 1.72 million pairs, and Academy Award winners, Nicolas Cage and Kevin Spacey, I actually had to find a picture of Nicolas Cage because I didn't believe he had actually won an Academy <laughs> Award, but he did. For The Rock, I think it was. Nicolas Cage, Kevin Spacey, they wore hush puppies when they received their statues. That same year, 1996, Princess Diana 
contacted Wolverine and wanted a special collection of hush puppies sent to England. By the end of 2001, less than a decade, 12.46 million hush puppies were sold in America, which resulted in $1.8 billion in sales revenue. Hush puppies, without explanation, had once again become an American staple. Now, citing this incredible turnaround, the turnaround of the hush puppy, and his book, The Tipping Point, Malcolm Gladwell, he asks this question. He says, how did that happen? Like those first few kids, whoever they were, they weren't deliberately trying to promote hush puppies. They were wearing them precisely because no one else would wear them. Then the fad spread to two designers who used the shoes to peddle something else, high fashion. The shoes were an incidental touch. No one was trying to make hush puppies a trend. Yet, somehow, that's exactly what happened. The shoes passed a certain point in popularity. They tipped. Malcolm Gladwell continues, how does a $30 pair of shoes go from a handful of downtown Manhattan hipsters and designers to every mall in America in the space of just two years? Now, in seeking to explain this phenomenon, Gladwell, he defines a tipping point as the moment of critical mass, the threshold, the boiling point. Gladwell believes that the success of any kind of social epidemic is heavily, heavily dependent on the involvement of people with a particular and rare set of social gifts, or what Gladwell calls the law of the few. He continues, the best way to understand the hush puppy boom, or any number of the other mysterious changes that mark everyday life is to think of them as epidemics. Ideas, products, messages, behaviors spread just like viruses do. The chief characteristic, one, contagiousness. Two, the fact that little causes have big effects. And three, that changes happen not gradually, but in one dramatic moment. He says that these are the same three principles that define how measles moves through a school or flu attacks every winter. History attests that within 40 years from Christianity's ground zero, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on these 120 believers gathered in Jerusalem, that this new movement, it would spread in such a dramatic, radical, revolutionary way across the Roman world similar to an epidemic, that even 40 years later, that even Caesar Nero, the most powerful man in the world, would experience the long reach of the gospel's message when the apostle Paul would stand before him and give an account. It's a simple fact of history that by 260 AD, Christians constituted an astounding 40% of the Roman Empire. In the span of 300 years, the church would grow from zero members to include the numerical majority of the entire Roman world. And yet, and yet, as with the hush puppy boom, while we recognize the result, Christianity started with no people, in 40 years it dominated the world, the great question centers upon the how. How does that happen? How did Christianity spread at such a radical rate? And note, 
This question becomes even more confounding when you consider that while the gospel had come to dominate Jerusalem and spread throughout regions like Judea and Samaria during the first 20 years, Christianity at this point in our text is hardly global in scope. That said, as we do leave Acts 12, you need to understand, and this sets the context for our passage this morning, that conditions are perfect for the gospel to now spread beyond its present reach. Taking Gladwell's blueprint, let's apply it. It's evident that little causes, just 120 Jewish followers of Christ filled with the Holy Spirit have had big effects. They have this potential. Christianity has proven to be contagious. It possesses an appeal, exemplified by the gospel's early spread, but the only thing missing, it's contagious, little, little effects have big causes, but the one thing's missing is a dramatic moment when something abnormal occurs. A moment in time, not a gradual, but a singular moment when boom, things tip. The norm changes forever. And it's amazing, but Acts 13 it records for us this occurrence. It's really a chapter that changed the world. We're gonna witness in our text a tipping point of monumental proportions where the first carriers of the gospel intentionally move beyond ground zero into unaffected regions. Now this has happened before to a degree, right? There was a persecution in Jerusalem and Philip went to Samaria, right? We've seen this before, where people have gone into unaffected areas, Judea, Samaria, but they've always been forced, right? It's always been the byproduct of something else. Persecution, we're running for our lives, we just are also bringing the gospel with us. At this moment, what's different is for the first time, without persecution, without some extra force making it happen, the church makes a decision to send people out with the gospel into areas where the gospel has not reached. It works just like a pandemic. Ground zero, and now we have carriers who are going with the purpose of infection. Acts 11, it closes with Barnabas and Saul bringing a financial relief package from this church in Antioch to believers who are located in Jerusalem. Now, following the death of James, the miraculous escape of Peter during their stay, Acts 12 closes with this statement, that Barnabas and Saul return from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. So they bring this relief package, they stay a few days, in that course of time, James dies, Peter's arrested, they're at the prayer meeting. It's kind of interesting to think that Saul and Barnabas are there in all of the activities of Acts 12 but they are. Peter leaves, he drops out. What happens? Barnabas saw, they've concluded what they were sent for. They begin the traveling of 300 miles back to Antioch. And we're told that they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. John Mark, um, also known specifically as Mark, is a gospel writer. We also know that he's cousins with Barnabas. We were told in Acts 12 that it was his mother's home where the prayer meeting was being held. 
He's got a connection to Barnabas, now a connection to Saul. They're going back to Antioch. John Mark decides to go. We'll be told in a few minutes he travels as their assistant. Verse 1, chapter 13. Now, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menin, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Like, note that we're told in the church that was at Antioch. This is just another example of the fact that the church exists in two components. One, there is the universal church. Regardless of denomination, regardless of of, of geographic region, uh, regardless of certain uh, beliefs when it comes to theological issues, we're all part of the same church. And yet, the universal church is also comprised of local church bodies, church communities, church fellowships that exist where? In specific locations. So we have in the church, that was where? At Antioch, they went to the church, that was Jerusalem. Different church, there's a level of autonomy, but they're all one. Luke continues by telling us that at this church, there were certain prophets and teachers. Prophets and teachers, teachers, these were men who taught the word of God, that taught the scriptures, that taught of Jesus. We see this church in Antioch was Bible-centric, the living word. In that sense, we can very much relate, can't we? We too, being a Bible-centric church. But we're also told that there were also prophets at this church in Antioch. And this is where things get a little interesting and a little perplexing. A prophet, in its most simplistic definition, is a man who communicates a message from God, which is great because this is a ministry-minded church. The word of God's being taught, and you can think of it in the sense that the word of God's also being applied. In the New Testament, there seems to be two roles for this job of prophet. First, a prophet uniquely applied the truth of God's word as it pertained to specific situations. So think of it like you're having an issue, let's say in your marriage or with a neighbor, and you need advice. So you would come to the church and there were prophets there that would sit down with you and they would help you take the truth of God's word and apply it specifically to your individual situation. They were in some regards like counselors. They didn't speak new revelation. They just took the revelation that existed and helped people apply it in an appropriate way. But these prophets also had another role, and it's undeniable. And that is the fact that they relayed future events through special revelation. Acts 11, we've already seen this demonstrated. A man comes to Antioch from Jerusalem. We're told he's a prophet, Agabus. And he predicts, he prophesies that a great famine was coming that would impact the whole world. We find this gift manifesting itself in numerous instances as we continue to travel through the book of Acts. And so there is an aspect where a prophet does speak to future events through special revelation. Now let me explain just in a quick sense what else the New Testament says concerning this unique ministry. First, prophets do exist in the church. It's a role. It's not just a role that was applicable to the apostolic church. It's a role that within all contexts should still exist in today's church that should exist in some regards in our own. Ephesians 4 verse 11, Paul says that Jesus himself gave 
to the church. Some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. We also should note that prophecy is a gift of the Holy Spirit. If you ever run into someone that calls themselves a prophet, I'm just gonna give you a clue, that probably means they're not. You, you don't appoint a prophet. It's not an, a self-appointed position. It's not even in some regards a church-appointed position. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit working through an individual. So it's a God-appointed position, just like all the other gifts, teachers and, and, and pastors and elders and deacons. It's recognizing that the gift, Romans 12, verse 6, Paul says, having then gifts differing according to the grace that's given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, note he mentions prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. You should also note that prophecy exists mainly for the edification of the church. Like, like if, if someone gives you a prophecy, thus saith the Lord, you're gonna die at midnight tonight. That's not edifying in any way. Like that doesn't help me out. Like that's, like that depresses me. That doesn't encourage me. Like prophecy exists for the edification, the encouragement of the church. 1 Corinthians 14, verses three and four. But he who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. Prophecy should also, we're told in scripture, be tested and judged by the people in the church. 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, let two or three prophets speak, but let everybody else judge. Just because someone says they have a word of prophecy doesn't mean that we're to take it at face value or not challenge it or examine it and see if there's any weight or value to it. Now, I will admit that this particular gift, as far as the church goes, we kind of shrill at it to a degree, mainly because it's abused in, in horrible senses, right? Like where you got guys that end up being featured on CNN that are predicting the rapture coming, right? They're prophets. They claim to be prophets. And, and, and we just kind of like, it makes Christians look like Looney Tunes, and we don't like that. And so we're like, eh, we're going to stay away from that. But please understand, while prophecy as a gift is really abused, just like the gift of tongues, it doesn't mean that we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. Because it does exist. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. A healthy church has prophecy. My mom, years ago, 1982, her and my father had been trying for a few years to have a child, to get pregnant. And in the course of time, my mom went to a pastor's conference. She was with a group of ladies. She shared just her desire to have a child, but that for three years, it hadn't worked. And so the ladies decided to lay hands and pray for my mom. And a sweet lady, her name's Jean McClure, in the middle of this prayer meeting had a prophecy. The spirit filled her and, and she saw a vision. And she told my mom a year from that day that she would have a baby boy. A year from that day, May 29th, 1983, this lug of joy came into the world. <laughs> Which is why my name is Zachary. Because Zachary means remembered of the Lord. And my mom, in that moment, felt as though that the Lord had remembered her cry and had answered her cry. Prophecy exists. 
It's a cool thing. It's a powerful thing. I'd like to see it utilized in more instances within our church. It's not something to be afraid of. Something to test, to be careful with. There's abuses, but it still exists nonetheless. Now look at the, the leadership of this church. The leadership of this church in Antioch. We're first introduced to Barnabas. Now we know a lot about Barnabas. He's a Levite. He's originally from Cyprus. Uh, I'd encourage you to go back in, in our travels through the book of Acts, find passages that deal with Barnabas for a more complete profile. He's known, by the way, for his gift of encouragement. Then we're introduced to a couple new characters. There's Simeon, who is called Niger. Now, I want to share a little bit of a theory in regards to who this guy is, because I think, I think it's true, and I think it's pretty radical. It seems, and there's quite a bit of evidence, that this man, Simeon, who was also called Niger, was a man named Simon, a Cyrenian, who ended up carrying the cross of Christ, if you recall as Jesus is taking the cross to Golgotha, that in the process of time, he, he, he crumbles under the weight of the cross. And so they, they pull a bystander out of the audience, out of the, by, out of the group of onlookers, and they make him, a guy we're told, is named Simon, a Cyrenian. Now, back in Acts 11, verse 20, and let me, let me build a little bit of a case here, we're told that men from Cyprus and Cyrene had come to Antioch to preach Jesus to the Hellenists. So we know that part of the formation of this church in Antioch had been believers from these two towns, these two areas, Cyprus and Cyrene, coming to Antioch with a specific intention of evangelism. Simeon and Simon are synonymous. You will find even the apostle Peter being referred to as Simeon and Simon. The two are interchangeable, and Niger literally means black. It indicates that he was of African descent, which would make sense because Cyrene was located in North Africa, present-day Libya. Now, beyond this, Mark chapter 15, verse 21, where we're given this detail uh, of this man carrying the cross of Christ, Mark also says that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus, which indicates that Mark knew all three men, when he's writing the gospel of Mark and he mentions this guy being pulled out of, of the crowd to carry the cross, he knows him to the point that he also knows his kids. He's like, oh yeah, that guy, he's the dad of Alexander and Rufus. So Mark knows this man. We know that. Interestingly enough, who's now with Barnabas and Paul? John Mark. Paul would write in Romans 16 verse 13, as he's in Corinth writing to the Romans, he says, greet Rufus and his mother which also indicates that Paul knew this family as well. I, I'm kind of convinced that Simeon, Niger, is actually the man who carried the cross, which is, which is really neat that we see him pop up here in the book of Acts. We're also told of Lucius of Cyrene. Now he's mentioned again in Romans 16, which seems to be evidence that why Paul is in Corinth that Lucius was part of the second missionary journey. We don't know anything else. One random theory is that he could actually be the author, that he could actually be Luke, but I don't particularly believe that. Just an interesting thought. Menin, who is also brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, another fascinating character. This phrase, brought up, it literally means nourished with one or a companion of one's childhood. It would appear that Menin was either the stepbrother or a really close friend of Herod Antipas. 
Herod Antipas being the Herod that killed John the Baptist, later saw Jesus, but Jesus remained silent, that even within his household, we find a convert. It's a really diverse group, isn't it? This leadership there. It's, it's some regards cosmopolitan. And then we have Saul. And, and you can refer to our study in Acts 9 for a full profile of him. We're told in verse 2 that as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. I, I love this phrase. As they ministered to the Lord. You know, the, the scene that Luke sets here is one of private reflection. It's just these five men and they are together. So the leadership of this church, spending some time with the Lord, time in prayer. I, I would encourage you on a side note to, to pray for the leadership here of Calvary 316. Uh, this Friday night, we're gonna be getting out of town. We're gonna be going up to a cabin up in the woods and we're gonna spend about 24 hours praying for you, praying for our church, seeking vision. It's a good thing. And, and, and what do we see them doing here? We're told that they ministered, and note, to the Lord. This word ministered, it has in the original language a priestly undertone. It presents the idea of performing a service. And who are they performing a service to? Christ. Understand, the focus of their time was not seeking to have Jesus tend to their needs or satisfy their desires, but they had gathered for a different reason. It was not me-centric. It was Jesus-focused. They wanted to take an opportunity to just exalt the name of Jesus. You know, there's a lot of reasons you can come to church. You can come to church to be a minister, to minister to others. You can come to church to be ministered to by others, both legitimate reasons. You might even come to just be a spectator of the ministry that's happening. You're not really sure about the whole Jesus thing. You're just kind of observing. These people seem like they're crazy, but they're genuine, but they're crazy, but I don't figure it out. All legitimate reasons to come, but, and I think within our church, this is the one thing we miss a lot. The main reason you should come to church is to have an opportunity to minister to Jesus. When was the last time your prayers were not gimme, 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 gimme? But you know what? I, I'm good. I just gotta tell you how great you are. Where it was all about him. This is what they're doing and I love it. Please realize any ministry for the Lord must flow out of our ministry to the Lord for it to be effective. If you don't have a healthy ministry to the Lord, you will not be effective ministering for him. Any horizontal ministry between one another, it must be a byproduct of a vertical ministry. Now, as they spent time ministering to the Lord, Luke tells us, so they're in this deep time of reflection, they're praising God, they're exalting his name, and we're told that the Holy Spirit said. Now, that's fascinating to me. Like God the Father spoke in the Old Testament, right? And in the New Testament, the Gospels, Jesus, second member of the Godhead, he's the one speaking. But now the directives for the church, they're coming how? 
through the leading and guidance, the specific directive of the Spirit. Now, how does the Spirit speak? You ever thought about that? Like, wait a second, how do they know? They're there, they're worshiping the Lord, they're spending time. We're told the Holy Spirit spoke. Was it an audible voice? That would make it easy, right? I know God's speaking. It's a thunderous sound coming from heaven. Was it potentially one of the prophets? This gift being manifested in this particular group? Did one of them communicate a message from the Holy Spirit that was attested by the rest of the group? We see an example of this in Acts 21. Was it an inner moving? Just corporately within that group, just something deep within them indicated something. G. Campbell Morgan kind of rejects the idea of an audible voice. He says this, and I think it's interesting. He says, I do not for a moment imagine that the assembly heard a voice. This is the mistake we too often make. We try to force ourselves into ecstasies in order to hear the voice. Then we imagine we hear it. They're just spending time with the Lord, and they sense that the Spirit spoke. Now, I'm trying, and this is just opening up a little bit of my own life. I'm trying to be, to be more sensitive to that inner voice that's a thought, jumps into your head. You can't explain its origin, like where it comes from. Like the Lord impressed on my heart a, a friend of ours, Joe Henschel, just out of the blue. And I was like, I'm going to text him immediately. Just, hey, man, Lord pressed you on my heart. Just want to check in. Hope you're doing well. And he replied, Thank you so much. I just got news that my grandfather had passed away. And you're like, dang, that was the Holy Spirit. Like I heard something and I acted upon it and then it was confirmed. Last Saturday night, around 1030, I sensed a prompting within my soul to send my friend Paul Hammontree. I mentioned him a couple Sundays ago. This is a picture of him. Paul is is currently battling a very aggressive form of cancer. It started in his sinus cavity. It's moved through the, the skull. It's, it's in his brain. The outlook is very bleak. And we were sitting there. It was 1030 at night. Um, I was watching TV. And just the, I, just, I just had one of those impressions that I needed to send Paul a message, a message of encouragement. So I grab my phone, and I go to craft a text message. And I, I'm not kidding. In that moment, it was like, there were five words I couldn't escape. And, and so I typed out, God is proud of you. And I thought, no, that's not it. And I went back and I changed it to Jesus is proud of you, exclamation point. And I sent it to Paul. Well, I, I got a reply that I didn't expect. He said, dude, you have no idea how that speaks to me. And then he says, remind me to tell you next time I see you in person. Now, unsure if or when that day might ever come, this past Monday, I got an email from Paul. I, I want to read it to you. I asked his permission. He said I could. He says, hey, Zach, I feel the need to explain this to you since you shared that word with me the other day. Years ago, I felt the Lord calling me to leave the Lutheran church. I had served as a youth pastor in the Lutheran church for 10 years. All of our friends, all of our family were Lutheran. Our whole life was Lutheran. The thought of leaving meant leaving everything we had known. It was very difficult to think through. As I discussed it with a few very close friends who were also Lutheran, they told me things like, you need to stay. Help us change things. Anyway, it was real difficult. During this time, I was learning what it meant to have a real relationship with the Lord 
rather than just being a religious person. I was seeking the Lord in a powerful way in those days, fasting and worshiping, reading and praying. One day I heard about a worship event taking place in an old theater in downtown Bakersfield. I decided to go. At the end of the service, they had a time of worship, invited people to come forward and kneel before the Lord to worship him. I went forward and knelt. Then a kid came over. He was probably 17 or 18 years old. He asked if he could pray for me. I told him to go for it. He put his hand on my shoulder. He said nothing. All of a sudden, I felt this huge lump come into my throat. And I started feeling all of these powerful emotions welling up. And then the kid said, you have been faithful. Jesus is proud of you. You are free to leave now. I fell apart. I began sobbing uncontrollably. I just knelt there and cried. I don't know how long it was, but the kid never said another thing, and I couldn't even find him when it was over. Soon after that, I resigned from the Lutheran church. I have no idea why the Lord put it on your heart to tell me what you did. I don't know if he's about to call me home to be with him and that he wants me to know that I have done what he has asked me to do. I really don't know, but I know that the Lord spoke through you to help me know he is in this whole cancer thing. Thank you so much for being faithful to share that with me. My hope is that I will stay alive and continue to share God's love with my family and friends. But if God does call me home, there is no doubt that it is his perfect plan for my life and the lives of those around me. I love you, Zach. Even more now that the Lord chose to share that word with me. I hope to see you again soon. Paul. What if I hadn't, if I hadn't sent the text? If I had been afraid? If I, if I hadn't had, had the boldness or the wiliness or whatever you want to call it to just act upon an impression? I, I encourage you, how we hear the Holy Spirit, I think he can speak audibly, but most of the time I'm learning that he speaks inwardly. And the challenge is learning to hear, to recognize that voice. But you know the best way to learn how to do it is to act upon what he tells you and then see. It's something I'm learning to do and over and over and over again. It's exciting and radical. And I'm just so humbled and blessed that God would use me to communicate something to Paul, those same five words. If I had put God is proud of you, wouldn't have the same effect. True statement, but not the same effect. There's a reason that it needed to be those five words because for Paul, it connected him to a moment. Now, what did the Holy Spirit say? We know the Holy Spirit spoke. But the directive here, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have called them. Now understand, God was not calling Barnabas and Saul to do a work in this passage. This is not their calling. Rather, the Spirit, if you look at it, was giving them the order that the time to fulfill their calling was finally at hand. Notice it's the past tense. Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now don't forget, back in Acts 9, verses 15 and 16, the Lord had been clear what his plans for Saul's life had been, right? He he said that... Saul is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And while the calling 
had been clear and existed for 15 years. Saul had not been given a green light or the opportunity to act upon it, had he? Instead, he spends three years in Arabia, a season in Damascus, a season in Jerusalem, 10 years in Tarsus, being summoned now by Barnabas back to Antioch, where he's teaching the people, but he still hasn't engaged this calling. He's still sitting out there, and he's patiently waiting. Please understand, for a work of God to be successful, it must take place in his timing, not ours. Paul had been given a calling, but he hadn't been given an opportunity. And does he go out, kick down doors, and make it for himself? No, he just waits for 15 years. You think at some point you begin to kind of wonder, was that ever really a calling? 15 years. That's half of my life. That's a long time. It's crazy to me. You see, as evidenced by Saul, the calling of God and the opportunity to act upon that calling doesn't always happen in conjuncture. Like if you, at some point in your life, was, were impressed with a call, God wanted you to do something, and you've been kicking yourself that you haven't been doing it, and you're like, I'm a failure. I haven't been doing what I know I should be doing. Wait, because when it's time, the Spirit will speak to you and say, now, go. Separate Barnabas and Saul. And we're told that after fasting and prayed, laid hands on them, they sent them away. You know how we can tell these men were directed by the Holy Spirit? When the Holy Spirit spoke, they acted. Like, you know, the easiest way to tell if any of you or me is directed by the Holy Spirit, it's that, do I act when the Holy Spirit speaks? That, that means I'm directed by the Spirit of God. The Spirit said, go, and they sent them. And, and you got to imagine this is a loss. Like, not only is there the personal relationships that exist here, but Barnabas and Saul are the primary teachers. This is like the head pastor and the assistant pastor, both being called away. And yet they obeyed. We're told that they laid hands on them. The idea behind this gesture was to let them know that they were leaving with their blessing and as their representatives. They were sending them out. The word missionary literally means to send, a sent one. They were sending them. They weren't just going. They were being sent. And this gesture Laying hands, it communicated a, a powerful reality. Hey, though we might now be apart, we're always behind you. We got your backs. We're with you. And they sent them. Literally, the church released them. The Holy Spirit was sending them. The church was releasing them. Which, note, the job of the church is not to provide a man or woman a calling. That, that's something God can only do. Instead, the job of the church is to confirm both God's call and his timing have aligned. Saul and Barnabas, they're a dynamic duo. We'll get to them next Sunday as they embark on this first missionary journey. We'll explain kind of why these two men are, are, are perfect, perfect grouping for this particular task. But in conclusion, I, I want to bring kind of the macro point, this tipping point the first missionary journey, this macro point of this morning's message down to a micro application. During the first 20 years, the church undoubtedly experienced growth, right? We, we can agree to that. 3,000, another 5,000 taking over these regions. The church 20 years had experienced growth, but it's just the truth. 
that as compared to what would take place over the next 20 years, the growth of the first 20 was minuscule, right? Regional, now global, same amount of time. Now, I'm not saying that this wasn't all God's will, that it wasn't his plan, that things weren't happening according to his timing, his providence. Obviously, it was. This is not a criticism of the early church, but I do believe that there's an interesting point that we should consider. What singular event tipped Christianity from being a regional movement to a global phenomenon? Simple. Christians actively choosing to take the gospel into unaffected areas. That was the tipping point. That's when it all changed, when Saul and Barnabas are called and they go to areas unexposed to the gospel. Everything changed in this moment. What will be the tipping point for Calvary 316, for our church? Like what, what will have to happen for our church to double in size or triple in size? Now, a, a little disclaimer. I'm not so much interested in the size of the church, nor am I interested in church growth through the cannibalization of other churches. Like I have no interest in stealing sheep. I think it's stupid. Like, I want to see our church grow and the kingdom grow at the same time by new lambs being born and raised and reproduced here. Like, reaching the lost is our commission, not reaching those who are found. Like, it's insane to me. Great, your church tripled in size and all the other churches in the community died. Cool, man. Seriously, just so irritable when it comes to that idea. I don't want to be that. I want to see people give their lives to Jesus and come here and be fed and grow. Many of you are in that camp. But is the tipping point to see this happen? Is it more revenue? Like, uh, if we have more revenue, if the tithes go up, we can hire additional staff, we can build greater facilities. At that point, man, we're really cooking really grooving. Things are really happening. Just a little bit more money. That's the key. That's what will happen. Is the tipping point when we have more community outreaches or home groups, man, if we can just have one, one or two more programs, whew, we'll tip. It'll be awesome. Explosion. No, I don't think so. The tipping point, as we see demonstrated in Acts 13, will occur here when the people who attend this church and love this church and are being ministered to by this church and equipped by this church go into their worlds into unaffected areas with the gospel. When you start telling other people about Jesus, that's a tipping point. That's when everything will change. Like, let me ask, think about it. If you were to lead someone to the Lord, What's the most logical place for that person to go to church? Wherever you are going. They're a baby. Like when you birth a baby, where does it go? Wherever you go. <laughs> like that's a reality. Whether you like it or not, that baby's going wherever you're going. If you want to see the church grow and you're 
communicating the gospel, sharing your story, witnessing to others, and people are getting saved, they're going to come to your church. They trust you already, whether they realize it or not. They trust you. When was the last time you shared your faith with an unbeliever? Or the last time you invited someone to church who you knew didn't have a real church community? Like, are you really fulfilling the purpose for which you're here to be salt and light in the world around you? You know, according to research done by Tom Rainier, 82% of the unchurched in America are likely to attend church if they're invited by a friend. And yet, this is sad, only 2% of church members will actually invite an unchurched person in a given year. Only 2%. And while research is clear that most people come to church because they've been personally invited, that that's the mechanism, 70% of unchurched people polled claim to have never been invited to church before. What are we doing? Why can't we be bold? Why don't we sense a mission and an urgency? Here's my point, the whole point of this morning's message. And it's not to guilt you into bringing people here so the church can get bigger. No, it's, it's to, to see the world change to see you fulfilling what you're called and what you've been saved to do, to be light and to be salt. You see, if you want to see a radical work of God being accomplished through this church, forget that. If you want to be a part of a work of God that rattles the enemy, a work of God that changes communities, a work of God that sees lives transformed when this baby's taught, a work that yields effect, yields a tangible effect on the kingdom of heaven. If you want to see these things happen here or anywhere, you cannot sit on the sidelines. You want to know what the tipping point is? It's you. You're the tipping point. Whether or not you'll take the commission that God gave us seriously and go out and act upon it. They say, that it's impossible to infect someone if you're not infected, right? I can't give someone the flu if I don't have the flu, if I'm not a carrier of the flu. But if I am a carrier of the flu, then it's really easy to give it to someone else, right? Like, I can't infect others if I'm not infected. But if I'm infected, then that's only natural, baby, right? I'm giving everybody the flu. I'm making you all sick. That's the way that it works. I'm infected with something. My life has been changed by something, and I can't help but tell others. I can't help but share that. And we've got to be led by the Spirit. And so, Father, Lord, we ask that you just settle that into our hearts. In Jesus' name.